Lord, we ask you to bless this time as we look at your word. Show us the miracle of your pre- your predictions and your prophecies of the Messiah through this through this chapter, and we just ask you to guide us in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. Zechariah chapter eleven. This is an interesting chapter. Um, verse one. Open the doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour your cedars. Howl, fir fir trees, for the cedar is fallen. Because the mighty are spoiled, howl, O ye oaks of Bashan, for the forest of the vintage is come down. There is a voice of howling of the shepherds, for their glory is spoiled, a voice of the roaring of the young lions, for their pride of Jordan is spoiled. Lest saith the Lord my God, feed the flock of the slaughter whose possessors slay them and hold themselves not guilty. And they that sell them say, Blessed be the Lord, for I am rich, and their sheep and their shepherds pity them not. For I will no more pity the inhabitants of the land, saith the Lord, but lo, I will deliver the, the men, every one to his neighbor's hand and to the hand. And they shall smite the land, and out of their hand I will not deliver them. I will feed the flock of slaughter, even you, O poor the flock. And I took unto me two staves, and one I called beauty, and the other I called bands, and I fed the three shepherds also I cut off in one month, and my soul loathed them, and my soul also abhorred, and their soul abhorred me. Then said I, I will not feed you that 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 dieth. Let them die, let it die, and that, that is to be cut off, let it be cut off, and let the rest of Eat everyone the flesh of another. We start out with, Open your doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour your cedars. I struggled with this as I was reading this, and one of the commentators said something that kind of made it make some sense, is that Lebanon is a poetic name for the temple, because it was all made out of cedars of Lebanon. So I'll buy that, because now that makes more sense to me than what, because <laughs> it's all about judgment on Israel. And I it would burn down Lebanon <laughs> to be judgment on Israel. So I'm going to buy that this is a poetic name for the temple. Uh, I'd never heard that before, but it makes sense to me, and it makes the rest of the chapter <laughs> make some sense. Um, because they said that there's so much cedars of Lebanon in the temple that they just use that as, the, as it. And if you remember when Solomon built the temple, he got Hiram to give him all kinds of cedar, uh, cedars from Lebanon. He built his palace with the cedars of Lebanon. He built all the, all the wood, anything that was wood out of, out of the cedars of Lebanon. Then he covered it all with gold, so nobody saw the cedars of Lebanon. But, uh, but it was all made out of some of the best wood that you could possess. So I'm going to buy that this is a poetic name for, for the temple. Um, that the fire may devour your cedars, howl fir trees, for the cedar is fallen, because the mighty are spoiled, howl ye oaks of Bashan, for the forest of the vintage is come down. And this is really what was built in the temple. They used the oaks from Bashan. Bashan is a, on the east, northeastern side of the Jordan River. It is where the uh, two and a half, they didn't want to cross into the promised land because it was fertile land. It had trees. It had lots of uh, um, meadows and pasture land for their animals. And they go, this is the perfect place for us. 
wrong side of the Jordan. They kept getting conquered. They kept getting attacked, but they thought it was good. They walked by sight, and they paid for the price of walking by sight. Actually, their descendants <laughs> paid, for, paid the price for their walking by sight. Uh, so he says, howl fir trees. Now, fir trees are, if you're, from what, I've, what I've been able to determine from, from my examination on this is that fir trees are your cheap lumber, pine and fir. Uh, you know, and I kind of do know that part. You know, pine lumber is one of the cheaper lumbers that you can buy, and you can work your way up to oak and, and cedar. Um, and so it's saying how you fir trees, for the cedar is fallen, you might, and the mighty are fallen, how you oaks of Bashan, for the forest of the vintage has come down. God is saying there's going to be a judgment, and even the strongest will be judged. And this is interesting that God does not, is not a respecter of people. Uh, when judgment falls, the judgment falls on the good, the bad, the strong, the weak, the poor, the rich. God says judgment's falling and it comes and it takes no uh, mercy on anybody. Now, having said that, God can turn his righteous and give them a little more benefit, but even... Jesus said that the, you know, the rain falls on the good and the, and the just and the unjust. And it's all through the scriptures. Just because we are God's people does not mean bad things are not going to happen to us. And when the judgment of a nation falls, it falls on the entire nation. When God took the northern kingdom of Israel into captivity in Assyria, there were some good people that went into captivity. Because not everybody was evil. Now, the majority of them were. Otherwise, they wouldn't have fallen into judgment. When, the, when Judah fell into captivity under Babylon, there were good people. If you don't believe it, look at Daniel and his three buddies. You know, they got taken away, and they're godly men. And they were put into captivity. And this happens. Just because we're Christians does not mean that we will escape any judgment that falls on this country and you know, our country. And our country will fall into judgment eventually and seems to be falling into judgment even as we speak. There's things going on in our country that are just hard to believe. You never would have thought they would happen in our country. The righteous are being attacked. Anybody who stands for God is being attacked. It won't be long before we are put into prisons probably and, and persecuted. We see the handwriting on the wall. Because there's already all these attacks saying, if you don't agree with us, you need to be re-educated. And you listen to them, and they're talking about that. If you voted for Trump, you have to be re-educated. If you're a Christian that believes in the Bible, you have to be re-educated because you don't know how to think. So we are facing these problems right down the street. Now, they have to get over the Constitution, but the Constitution right now is just a piece of paper as far as they're concerned. And it doesn't mean anything either. So we're looking at these problems, and this is what he says, howl. It's, it, the things are coming. Judgment's going to come. Judgment will is coming in, on the country is, that Zechariah is talking about. And he is all through this making prophecies of what is going to happen. And verse 3 says, There is a voice of the howling for the, for the shepherds, for their glory is spoiled. The voice of, a roaring young, of the roaring young lions for their pride of, of Jordan is spoiled. And this is devastated. The shepherds, their glory 
is devastated. Now, in this case, we're going to find out that these shepherds were not good shepherds. They were not following and doing their job. A shepherd is supposed to keep and care for the sheep and take care of the sheep with not, with, and not, nothing happened to them. And Jesus said that the hireling does not care for the, shepherd, for the sheep. He's just a hired, hired, hired servant and lose a few sheep. Who cares? They're not mine anyway. And this is the attitude of these supposed shepherds. Uh, and it says, how? Your glorious... What was their glory? Their flock. And the money, in their case, we find out, is the money they would make from their flock. It's not even that they cared for the flock itself. And this is why Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. He takes his people and says, I am going to care for them all the time. He leads us. He feeds us. He lays us down in, in green pastures. He puts us in provisions. He takes care of us even when everything's going wrong. And this is why Psalm 23 is so beautiful. He says, I have made a place for you in the midst of your enemies. Enemies all around, and he is the shepherd protecting us. And we walk by sight so oftentimes, we look at all the enemies and say, oh my goodness, what's, wrong, what's going on? I'm in trouble. Look at all these people all around me, and Jesus says, I'm the shepherd. Just rest. The more we can learn to rest in Christ, the better off we're going to be. When somebody's attacking us, just rest. God says, I am the one that's going to revenge. I am the one that's going to bring it in. Our job is so simple when we just rest. God is in charge. When somebody attacks, we just say, okay, God, you go get them. You take care of them. What is the worst thing that can happen to us? We suffer. Yeah. And this is our point as a Christian. If I die as a Christian, that is the best glory that I can have because I go spend time with the Father. Yeah. So if I die as a Christian, it's the best thing that can happen to me. Now, I'm not out to go get dead quicker, but by the same token, I don't fear death at all. Because if I die, to be at, Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. In Psalms 139, God says it is, he takes pleasure in the death of his saints. So when we die as his saint, he takes pleasure in it. Why? Because we go to spend time with him. We get to go, we're no longer here separated from him. We're glorified and we're with him. And he says, you're, you're welcome home. Welcome home. Now, we as human beings may regret the loss of somebody that we love de deeply. But this is something even for us, when somebody who's a Christian dies, yes, we should understand that we might and probably will miss them. But I can't feel sad for them. When my sister died, I told her pastor at the, at the funeral, I go, I can't feel sad for her. She's in heaven. He goes, I know what you're saying. Now, I could not tell that to my mom and my you know, and, you know, the rest, of the, the rest of the family who did not understand it, but I knew that the pastor would understand what I was saying. You know, she was in heaven. Why would I feel sad? You know, yeah, she was lucky. She, she, you know, she is in heaven, and there's nothing, nothing sad about heaven. 
She's in a, in a pain-free environment and excited with you know, the life that she now has. And this is the point that we have. As long as we know somebody's a Christian, be excited when they go home. Yes, I understand you love them, you're going to miss them. That's, that's a different story. And I'm not saying you can't be, you know, have some, some problems with it. But you also want to understand they've gone home. <laughs> I am looking forward to the day that I get to go home. Paul said it, and I agree with him. He was talking to, and I can't remember which, which, which people, but he's going, I want to go home, but it is better for me to stay and minister to you. And I, and I love that idea. As long as I have somebody to minister to, I want to stay here on earth. As soon as I'm done ministering, I want to go home. I want to go home as soon as I'm done ministering. There's nobody else to minister to. Take me home, God. Because he is there. He is in protection. And a shepherd cares for those that, that they're put, put over and will minister to them and, and help them and, and follow with them and, and help them get through all of this. He says, your glory is spoiled. The voice of the roaring young lions for their pride of Jordan is spoiled. Note here also that what it says is the voice of the roaring young lions. How many times do we get afraid just because we hear of trouble or we think there might be trouble? It's an amazing thing that how many people worry about trouble, worry themselves sick, worry themselves into problems and God is saying it's only a voice yeah and New Testament says that the Satan is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour and he is tethered the good news for us is Satan cannot do anything that God does not give him permission to do and this is something that is very hard for people to understand why does God give Satan permission to give people a hard time? To see if they'll trust in him. Every time he, Satan comes in with a trial, it is to say, are you going to trust in me? When Jesus went into the wilderness to be tempted, what was his answer? He kept giving back scripture. Giving back scripture and saying, I'm not going to give up. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not changing. I'm not going to sin. I'm not going to fall. And he quoted scripture. This is one of the reasons I push for us to memorize scripture here. Because when we have scripture in our hearts, it'll give us something to answer when we're attacked. And this is very important. You know, because the scriptures tell us there have no temptation overtaken us, but such is this common demand. And what's Satan's biggest lie about your temptation? You're the only one that's ever had this, this thought. You're the only one that's ever, if, if people just knew how bad you were thinking about this, but we're not the only one. And as long as we believe for the lie of Satan that we're the only one, we will never open up and be, be rescued from it. Because, man, if I'm the only one, I'm awful, I'm terrible. How could I be even thinking these thoughts? And once you start falling for that, you're in, you're in trouble. Because now you're isolated and any time the, the wolves or the lions or anything goes after a flock, what do they do? They get one of them separated, usually a weak one that can't keep up with the flock, and it's killed. What happens to Christians? When they fall, they get separated from the body of Christ. And it happens so simply 
They're just not moving along with the direction the body's going. They accept the fact that they're the only one that's ever had this temptation and they fall away and, and then they feel guilty when they're in with the body of Christ because well, I'm just so awful, how can I be in with this group? And then soon they just fall away from the church and then they become a victim. We need each other. We need the help of other Christians. And that's why it's important to be in a body of Christ, committed to that body of Christ, so that when you're missing, somebody goes, oh, I, I, I missed you. When you share your problems, people don't criticize you. Now, does that mean every single in the person in the church is safe to, to approach that way? No. Because Jesus tells us that in the church are Christians and non-Christians. And sometimes the non-Christians might even look more like a Christian than the Christians. The wheat and the tares. Satan plants all kinds of non-Christians in churches to try to hurt people. And it's so often people get hurt by individuals in the church. And what does it tell? That their trust was not in God, the trust was in the people. We need to trust in God knowing that the people are going to not be perfect. People are going to say and do things that you don't like. They might even be Job's friends, saying that you're terrible and awful. <laughs> All right? They, they were wonderful friends, you know. They were telling Job how awful he had to be because good thing, bad things like that didn't happen to good people. You know, uh, but you know what? When somebody is being that way to you and being critical, take it for what it's worth. Nothing. Go back to what Jesus says. Jesus says that because we are Christians, he sees us as perfect. We've, he has declared us as perfect. And he is sanctifying us. He is making us more perfect with each day. And this is the beauty. The closer I draw to God, the more he sanctifies me. The longer I walk with him, the more he sanctifies me and you. He makes us more and more perfect. And this is why I tell people, don't look back in, on, on yesterday and the week before to see if you're growing in Christ. Because just as in real growth, when you look at kids, you don't watch the kids grow, grow you, know, you know, every day you, it doesn't, you don't notice how much they grow, but you spend, you get away from them for six months to a year, you know, or, or longer. <laughs> you know, when I see my grandson next, it's going to be amazing. He'll be four, you know, three or four years old by the time I see him next. Last time I saw him, he was a baby. <laughs> You know, he's, he's going to look like, a, like a, you know, the kid that he's becoming. <laughs> you know, but you know, this is the same way for us as Christians. We look back over a period of time and then we look at our life and say, I would never have treated that person with that much kindness a year ago, two years ago. I would not have been very nice to that person if they did that. And we always will have a long way to go, but we can always look and say, how much am I growing? What am I learning? Where am I gaining? And be able to understand that it is all a roaring of lions. Nothing can touch us until God allows something to touch us. And when he allows that, he is standing right there to be our strength to get through it. And it depends on are we going to walk by faith or are we going to walk by sight? If I walk by faith, I know that Jesus is there and I walk, walk in the power of his strength. If I walk by sight, which is so easy as a human being, don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to make it sound like it's easy. We always tend to walk by sight because that's who we are. We're flesh and blood. 
Everything looks like it's going bad for me, so it must be going bad. And God has got a plan. And this is why it's so important. And you all know my favorite, one of my favorite verses is Romans 8, 28. <laughs> okay? And it really is. When things seem to be going bad, I try to remind myself that God has a plan. All things will work together for good. Now, not necessarily for my good, but they're going to work together for good, and there's going to be a reward in heaven for whatever I go through. And so this is, the more we can grab hold of our verses, the more we understand the Bible and say, I am going to trust God's word no matter what I think I see. All right? I think I see problems. God, you've got a plan. I think I see that God has abandoned me. God, you have not left me alone. All these things, you know, now we don't put I think I see. We go, God, why have you abandoned me? God, why have you let all these problems happen to me? But we really do need to get to the place where we really understand that this is how I think I see things. And I don't see them the way they are. I see what limited sight gives me. God sees things from the spiritual side of things. And I think when we get to heaven and God shows us our life a little bit from that side of things and he plays back our life for us a little bit and we see all of the attacks that are going on around us, all of the enemy's uh, problems that he's throwing at us, might scare us <laughs> to know how much, how little got through to us compared to what he wanted to throw at us. And we understand Job said very clearly that Satan had to ask for permission to do anything to Job. In Peter, he tells us that he's a chained adversary. He can only do what he's allowed to do. And how do we know that logically? He hates God and he hates God's creation. So if he could do whatever he wanted, every human being would be dead. Instantly. Because that's what he would do. He would take away God's greatest creation before they had a chance to accept Christ and just kill them. He is limited. He is not the enemy, the equal of God. He's not really even an enemy of God. God has him on a chain and uses him. You know, so never ever believe that he's an, that an equal to God to begin with. He's a created being. He has limits that God allows him to do, and God is using him to test his people. Why? He throws out a test to us, and it's a question, are we going to trust God, or are we going to trust ourselves? The sad thing is, too often we trust ourselves. All of us, including myself, we trust ourselves. Now, the longer we walk with God, the better we can get at trusting God more than ourselves. But we'll still trust ourselves in so many occasions that we're not being in fellowship with God and resting in Him. The beauty of this whole thing is to be, as Hebrews tells us, to walk in faith, rest. Just to be at rest. When all of hell seems to be breaking loose against us, we're going, God, you're still stronger than everything, all my problems. God, when all this stuff's happening, I don't know why you're letting it happen, but you're still stronger and you've got a plan. The more we rest in God, the better off we're going to be. Now, none of us will ever do it perfectly. 
Our goal is to keep doing it better and better so that we can just say, I just rest. And I'm getting better at it. I used to fight with God all the time, and now I don't fight with him quite as much or near as long. <laughs> uh, and hopefully that's true for each one of you. You fight God less, you fight him less, long, you know, le- less often more and, and, and res- resign quicker because he's going to win in the long run. I've walked with him for 50 years, and one thing I have learned is God gets his way. One way or the other, he's going to get his way. Even if I argue with him for a long time, you know, don't, don't, go, don't try to break my record of six years. <laughs> uh, you, know, you can argue with him, but he will make sure that he wins in the long run. And if he won't change, he'll take you home. Yeah, but he knows that you're going to change if he, because God is good at putting us in the circumstances that are going to make us realize that he's the answer. And when I fought with him for six years, he made my life miserable. And the sad thing is, because he was making my life miserable, my wife's life got miserable, and my four kids' lives got miserable. <laughs> yeah, so I, because of my deciding not to follow God and surrendering to him, others suffered. And this is the problem that it happens is when we don't obey God, others will suffer around us as God makes our life miserable. So it's better to just surrender to God and do it quickly and just learn to rest in what he has for a plan. And we struggle so hard. Why? Because our pride gets in the way. I'm going to do it this way. I am going to fix this problem. I am going to make sure that this is taken care of. And God is saying, all right, you go ahead and do that. I'll, I'll wait. And you can suffer the consequences of fighting and, and arguing and not, not walking, which takes us into one of my other verses that I love, Galatians 2.20, for I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but the faith that I now live in, I live in, the, in the, the life that I now live, I live according to the faith of Christ. God is wanting to crucify our flesh. He will put us in situation after situation that says, I want your flesh and your pride to die. Are you willing to die? Now, as human beings, we don't like to die. Our flesh really does not like to die. God wants to crucify it. It sees the cross coming, and it does everything it can to not be put on that cross. Because we have, almost all of us, have too much pride to give in. We want to be masters of our own fate. The problem is we're not masters of our own fate. We're either controlled by God or we're controlled by the flesh and, and Satan. Those are the only two options we have. We may think we're doing our own thing, but we never get to do our own thing. And if, if you think back, those times that you're doing your own thing, which is usually sin, you realize that sin has made you a captive. And you're no longer free to do what you want. You've got to do what that sin wants you to do. Whatever that sin is. You know, if you're into alcohol, you'll, you'll end up being enslaved to alcohol. If it's drugs or, or, or illicit sex or workaholism or laziness or whatever, you know, whatever it might be, you become a slave to that sin. And God is saying, I have so much more for you. I want to rescue you and, and I want to be the one that's controlling you. 
So we want to be able to just say, God, I want to be controlled by you. These shepherds did not go that way. <laughs> These are false shepherds. Verse 4 says, Thus saith the Lord, God, feed the flock of the slaughter. So he says, your flock is going to be killed. And he's telling these shepherds that are bad shepherds, go ahead and feed them. But a certain portion of a flock is used for food, but the rest of the, most of the money made from shepherding was made from the wool. Made from the wool. And he says, you're, you're, gonna, you're raising these, these sheep to be slaughtered. And then he says in verse 5, Who, Whose possessors slay them and hold themselves not guilty, and they that sell them say, Blessed be the Lord, for I am rich. And their own shepherds pity them not. How many times they look, they do something wrong, they sin, and it seems like they get rewarded. And what do they immediately say? God has blessed me. God has blessed me. Never mind, I robbed a bank and, and that's how I got rich, you know, or, or I did whatever I'm not supposed to do and I got rich. I'm a workaholic. I worked 90 hours a week and ignored my family and God and the church, but now I'm rich and it's all God's blessing. And God is saying, no, it's not my blessing. And in the long run, everything falls apart. How many times have we done things in our own strength just to watch them fall all apart? Now, make my plans, get successful, get, get everything working my way, and then everything, because it's built on sand, falls apart. Beautiful building, beautiful edifice, and it falls down because it's built on sand. We see this all the time in many of these singers and athletics and movie stars and everything, they get everything they've ever wanted, but they do it the wrong way. And they sell their soul for what they're, what they're getting and then find out that all that fame, all that money is not all that it was cracked up to be. It didn't bring them happiness. How do we know that it doesn't bring them happiness? Well, they get into alcoholism and drug, drug abuse and suicides and all these other things. We know that it does not, does not bring happiness because if we're not happy in God and content in God, we won't be happy with everything. Solomon was not happy and he had more wealth than anybody, more fame than anybody, more reputation than anybody, and he still was miserable without God. And so we know his book on Ecclesiastes tells us that everything was miserable. And we know that great wealth. Now, I, and I, every time I'll talk to, well, just let God, let me, let me do it, God, and I'll, and I'll show you how nice it will be. If they're not happy with God, no amount of supposed blessing is going to make you happy. Because our contentment must be in God. Once we're content in God, I'll be happy with much or with little, as Paul said. If my contentment is God, he's meeting my basic needs, and I have a house over my, a roof over my head, and I have just enough food, and by American standards, just enough food is a lot more than what the rest of the world says is just enough food, and be content, because God is in control. God is giving me everything I need to survive. And if I learn contentment, 
he might just give me much. As long as I recognize that in the much, it's not the stuff that, I, that I'm having my contentment in, it still is in God. And the problem is, so often we stop looking at the giver of the gifts and start looking at the gifts and start saying, well, God, I just want the gifts. I just want the gift. And God is saying, well, I want you to want me. You want me and I'll give you everything. But too many of us will try to say, well, I've got lots of stuff now. And I have said this over and over. I have seen more people get blessed by God, literally blessed by God, they're following God, they're honoring God, giving their, giving their tithes, they're serving God, and they start getting blessed. And then they stop coming to church. And you go, well, what happened? Well, you know, I've been up at the vacation, vacation house uh, for the last couple weeks, and, you know, and I had to ride the motorcycles, you know, last week, you know, the week before that, and had to take the boat out the week before that, and had to, you know, they start paying attention to the stuff that they're rewarded with, and start ignoring God. And usually what happens eventually is they lose their stuff. <laughs> because God says, you, okay, you trust your stuff more than me, I'm going to take your stuff away. Just like we do when we discipline our kids. All right, you're not paying attention, I'm taking your stuff away. <laughs> you're, you're on restriction. Uh, you know, and for many of us, we need to restrict them from their own room anymore, not, <laughs> not, not you know, make them stay in the living room rather than their bedrooms. Um, yeah, you got to stay with me. Wherever I'm going, you're staying with me. Most of us don't want that much punishment, though. <laughs> uh, but God is not that way. He wants us with him. So he will take away our stuff if we, if we stop forgetting about him. And we see here, he says, these shepherds are saying, I'm rich, God has blessed me. <laughs> How many times have we heard people who don't even know God saying, I am being blessed by God. Look at all the stuff I've got. All the blessings I've got. And they shall smite, uh, and their own shepherds pity them not, the, uh, the flock. Verse 6, for, for I will no more pity the inhabitants of the land, saith the Lord, but I will deliver the men, everyone to his neighbor's hands and to the hand of his king, and they shall smite the land, and out of their hand I will not deliver them. There comes a time when we're disobedient to God that God will say, it's time for discipline. And at that time, he will have no pity for those that deserve it. This happens to nations, and God is patient. Look how long he waited for the inhabitants of the promised land before he destroyed them. 430 years letting them keep getting more and more evil until he destroyed them. How long did it take him to destroy Israel, let Israel go into captivity? Almost a thousand years before he sent them into captivity. God is patient, but it does have a limit to his patience before he says, now is the time for you to face punishment. And for his children, he says, I love you so much that I must chasten you. So many people look at the world and say, well, if you discipline somebody, you don't love them. Well, God says, because I love you, I'm going to discipline you. God is not going to allow his children to get wild. 
and do what they want. He tells parents to discipline their kids because otherwise you end up with spoiled kids who think they can do anything they want. And we're getting a generation of kids that are just like that. They have not been disciplined. They have not been, been controlled. And last job I had as a manager, I found all kinds of kids, kids working for me that had no discipline. I actually had one girl on her cell phone after I told her for the 50th time, it seemed like, to tell her to, not, to turn her cell phone off, told me, you can't control me. I'm going, you're right. You can hang up your phone and keep it hung up or you don't have a job. And she wasn't used to that kind of d discipline. Nobody had ever done that to her. You know, and this is what's out there in our, in our world right now. And we, even we as adults have problems, though, don't we? When we're told to do something, whether it's work or, or mandated by the government or whatever, you know, I have just a small problem. I don't like following speed limits. <laughs> you know, I, I treat speed limits as a suggested speed. <laughs> Uh, now, I've learned over the years to not go more than about five or six miles over the speed limit. But if I had my way, 100, 150 on these highways is perfect. <laughs> you know, I love speed. It's fun. <laughs> uh, and I chafe at the idea of having to, you know, keep it at 65 out here on 93 or, or 75 out on, on I-40. You know, um, and then you get outside of the area where it's really slow speed limits all the time, you know. <laughs> yeah. But we're all that way where we just chafe at being told you must do something. But God is saying discipline is good for us. Learning to be submitted is something that's good. And he puts authorities in place, himself primarily. But he says, I put the government in place. I put your... your your parents in place, I put the leadership in the church in place, all these different things that he says, I have put them in place for you to learn to be submitted. And it's hard sometimes to be submitted. We don't like that word. You know, we don't like the word submit. And it's a problem to us, you know, especially in America, where we have rugged individualism. Nobody tells me what to do. And that's part of what America is built on. You know, my freedom to do what I want. Don't tell me what, what to do. And this is something that is a problem that we have to deal with in our own life, to be able to stay submitted and to follow instruction. Then in verse 7, after God says he will not deliver, and then says, I will feed the flock of the slaughter, even you, O poor flock. And I took unto me two staves, and one I called beauty, and the other I called Bands and I fed the flock. So God says, I'm feeding the flock. You're going to go to slaughter. I'm going to make sure you're good and healthy. And God provides and puts us in the hands of others. Now, in this case, Israel is making all the wrong decisions. All right? During the time of Zechariah, idolatry worship is going on in full force. People are abandoning God not paying attention to him, looking the other way, trying to go the wrong direction. And God's saying, I'm still blessing you. You're still a nation. I'm still supporting you. But he says, there's coming a time when all of that ceases. 
and I'm going to say America seems to be in this place. If we do not repent as a nation, we're in this place where God is feeding, providing, and going to let it crash. I don't know if it's going to crash in our lifetime or not. I'm not going to try to make a prophecy, but we are looking at Zechariah's prophesying in the 480-something B.C. They're going to be conquered shortly thereafter. So this is not something that is new. This is always happening that God says, I'm putting you in place. You want to disobey? I'm giving you grace. I'm giving you mercy. I'm not destroying you when you, when you deserve it. Why? Because God is really good at giving people enough rope to hang themselves. All right? He says, okay, and you keep, you're going to run out of rope here pretty soon, and you're going to fall off that cliff, and the rope is tied around your neck. But keep going toward that cliff. If that's really what you want, I want you this way. I want you to stay away from the cliff. I want you to stay away from trouble. And we just keep marching blindly onto the cliff. No problem. I'm going to do things my way. I'm just going to do it my way. And your way will end up in trouble. And God will bring disaster upon you with it. Or allow disaster. And that is when everything goes wrong. And what do we do? We walked off the cliff on our, own, on our own free will and we blamed God. God, why did you let this happen to me? And God's saying, I told you not to go there. I kept telling you not to do that. And we need to then learn to humble ourselves and say, okay, I repent. All of this comes down to repentance and saying, God, I turn away from what I'm doing. Give me the strength to be victorious. How do we get over any sin that we have in our life that besets us? First thing, we recognize that it's a sin. As long as I don't think it's a sin, it's just a mistake, it's just bad things happening to me, uh, whatever, I, whatever excuses I lo- look at, I will not be victorious. But when I recognize that it's my problem, <laughs> I have a problem. Whatever that problem is, and we all have problems. We're not going to go around trying to figure out what our problems are, but we all have problems that, that trip us up. Most of the time, we don't recognize them as sin. Once we recognize it as a sin, now I can turn and repent from it, and God can give me victory over it. That first step is the recognition. The second step is repentance. And the third step is asking for power to get over it. And so we recognize our sin, we repent for our sin, we ask for, ask for the strength to get through, and then, then God says, okay, I am going to give you that help. And then, how does he help us? Well, unfortunately, most of the time, help comes in the temptation to do the sin that, sin that we're trying to get over. <laughs> because God is saying, okay, you repented of it, are you now going to turn and follow me. And this is the hardest part of getting over the problem because we like to try to say the devil made me do it or, you know, look what I fell into. Well, I fell into it because my eyes weren't on God and I was stumbled into the pit. And I wasn't quoting the scriptures that kept me from it. And I'm forgetting that it is a sin. Repentance is so clearly part of this, of this recognition. I repent. 
I turn away from the sin and turn toward God. And if my eyes are toward God, then the sin does not look good. The sin start, The more I get to know God, the more the sin looks ugly. This is the beauty of things. When you start walking closer to God and he reveals how sinful sin is, and I hope you've all experienced this in some area of your life where you get so, something that used to be so attractive to you is now ugly because you now recognize it as the sin that it is. And that takes away from it. When I'm walking toward it, it looks so pretty. That mask that it's wearing looks so pretty. And I fall right into the trap. But when I really see it for the ugliness that it is, there are certain things that I can't even comprehend doing anymore. Now, there's still lots of things I don't have victory over. <laughs> but there are many things in my life that I look at and say, that is so ugly. How could I have ever thought that that was something worth doing, spending time with? You know, and then there's certain things that you're in that halfway where you're kind of knowing that it's ugly and when you do it, you realize how ugly it is and you start going, oh God, how could I have been doing this again? And you repent all over and confess your sin and walk away from it. But eventually he says, I'm going to crucify it. And that is when we surrendered completely to him. Surrender is the biggest thing for God, with God. And once we get there, and people will always ask me, well, how do you surrender to God? You do it. Now, I can't really explain to it. In my lifetime, I have fought over things, fought over things, fought over things to surrender. When I finally surrendered to God, I kicked myself because it was so easy. I'm going, why did I wait so long to surrender and give up my rights to this thing and just say, God, I surrender. And once you've surrendered and you really truly have surrendered and you get that victory and you're going, wow, it was so simple. It was so simple to just surrender. Now, give, don't get me wrong. There's lots of areas where I still suffer with, <laughs> with trying to surrender. And I can guarantee you when I finally surrender, I'll be kicking myself for, for taking so long to surrender. I'm getting better. <laughs> I'm getting better at surrendering to God. I do it faster because I've learned over 50 years that he wins. He's going to win. So I'm getting better at surrendering. But I haven't made it yet. I haven't arrived. The good news is that it gets easier. It does get easier. The more I do it, the easier it gets. The more, the more I learn to trust him, the easier it gets. And this is the beauty. I learn to trust God. I learn to trust him. And I really, the more I trust him, the more I realize that he's trustworthy and the easier it is to trust him on the next event and the easier it is to trust him on the next event because he has proven himself trustworthy every time. Now to get there, is not fun. Because if you're going to trust God, he's going to put you in places where by sight it is impossible to trust. And you're going, God, you really want me to trust you in this situation? And he's saying yes. Because do we truly trust him if we're not really ready to trust him in the hard times? It is really easy to trust God when everything's going good. God, your scripture sounds so good. I really trust you. 
And then God will put us into a place where it says, okay, do you trust me now? When he puts us where everything looks like it's out of whack. Job was asked that, do you trust me by God? When everything looked bad, he had lost everything except for his wife. He lost his kids. He lost all of his possessions. Lost his friends. His friends were not very helpful. Matter of fact, his wife wasn't all that helpful. She said, why don't you curse God and die? Now, she might have been doing it out of love. You know, he's, here he's been, you know, extremely sick. You know, why don't you just curse God and get it over with? You know, you're in so much pain. I'm going to give her, I'm going to give her the benefit of the doubt that she was doing it for the right reasons. But her language was wrong. <laughs> You know, she was looking at the circumstances and saying, why don't you just get it over with? Job is looking at saying, God is doing something. I don't really understand what he's doing, but you know, I'm still going to trust God. Job's faith was amazing. Even though he did not understand anything that was going on to him. He was a prosperity gospel man. You do things right and you get blessed. And he was the proof of the pudding. He was one of the richest men in the world because of his blessings by God. And he kept living the same life and everything got taken away. And God's, I think he got to the place when God was trying to teach him, look to the giver, not the gifts. Because I think he'd gotten to the place where he was looking at the gifts. Because when you look at all of his answers, it's, yes, I know what you're saying is true. Bad, you know, good people don't suffer, but I'm not... I'm not this bad. I didn't deserve what had happened. God was teaching him a lesson. God will teach us lessons all the time. When our doctrine is not correct, God will put us in a place to test our doctrine and say, do you believe me now? Even though, you don't, even though it doesn't agree with what you thought I said, are you going to trust me? And this is when it gets hard to put our eyes on him and say, God, I trust you no matter what. No matter what. And this is important for us. How well do we know the Bible? Truly know the Bible. Job would have said, I know the Bible real well. He taught his friends and his disciples all these years on, on how he taught a prosperity gospel. Do good and get good. And that's exactly what they gave him. They gave him what he had taught them. You do, you do good, you get blessed. You do bad, you get, you get judged. All of a sudden, Job's not doing bad, but his friends all go, well, you must, have been, you must be really, really, really bad. God will put us into this situation all the time. Whatever our doctrinal beliefs are, he's going to trust. As it says in the truth, we deal tacked. You know, the tagline on it is, do you really believe that what you believe is really real? We, it's easy to say, I believe God's word. But do I believe his word when all hell seems to be breaking loose in my life? Do I believe that God is sovereign and has a plan for my life and it's a good plan when all I see is bad things happening? That is when the trust comes in and says, God, I am going to trust your word. Do I trust that I have salvation, that I am saved when my emotions and, and, and everything going on around me seems to say I'm not saved? Then I go to the Bible and says, well, I confessed with my mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and, and I believe that Jesus died for my sins, so I am saved. 
I'm not putting my faith in anything else. So now, just because I don't feel like I'm saved, just because I don't see salvation life or whatever you might want to say, I'm going, I know what I did. I know that I am saved. And I know that I haven't lost my salvation because God doesn't take away what he gives. So the questions always come down to whatever it is that God's teaching you, you're going to be tested in that area. God says, I want you to love one another as Christ loves the church. Oh, God, that's easy. Yeah. Huh? It's, e it's easy with a certain set of people, maybe. And it's not even easy then. <laughs> but God's going to say, okay, you really believe that. You believe that I told you to love people. You're, you think you're doing it pretty good with your church family. He's going to introduce somebody that's hard to love. And say, all right, here, here it is. Are you going to love? Are you going to love this person? God, I really believe I should be giving grace to everybody just like you said I should. Oh, as soon as you start getting taught about grace, God is going to put some people in your life that are so hard to be gracious to. And you're going to want to strangle them. And you're going to want to attack them. And God's saying, I thought you believed in grace. I thought you were, were, were growing in grace and you believed my, my statement that you're to give grace. And it's like, God, you are so nice to me. <laughs> As we're grumbling, you know, and the point is, he wants to get us beyond the point where we're doing the right thing and grumbling under, the, under, the, under our breath about it to actually just doing it. And it doesn't even stop then. Because God goes, okay, you think you now know grace? You got, you got over that person? Let, let's see if you really know grace. And he'll bring somebody else that needs grace. He'll bring somebody else that needs love. He'll need somebody else into your life. Why? Because no matter how far we grow in God, we have a lot further to grow to be like Christ. None of us will be like him in our lifetime we can get closer and closer and closer. But he'll keep bringing people in that are going to be hard to love. Imagine the love that Jesus had for humanity. Arrested for no reason. Taken and scourged. And we don't really understand scourging because we don't fully understand it, but that was taken to Roman flagellums, seven to 11 strands of leather waited and they beat you until your skin was flayed off of you and that's what he went through for us and he still loved those who did this to him they put a crown of thorns on his head and the thorns that tell us were like inch, inch long thorns and pounded it onto his head and still never called for judgment upon them because of his love for, for humanity they put a bag over his head and beat him and said, prophet, you're a prophet, tell us who's hitting you. Then after they did all of that, which was enough to kill anybody, they put him on a cross. And what did he say on the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, I don't know too many people that have ever had to be flayed within an inch of their life or crucified 
to show their love. And yet we have so much trouble showing love to people that get on our nerves. <laughs> and God's saying, I want you to be able to go all the way. Stephen, being stoned, looked into heaven, saw the Father and Jesus standing at the right hand of the throne and said, Father, forgive them and gave up the ghost. Many, many of the martyrs of Christ have been given that grace where they have said, Father, forgive them. I hope that if I'm ever asked to do that, that I will have enough grace to be able to say, Father, forgive them. I don't know if I have that much love. Paul had so much love for his people, the Jews, and he told God, God, if it were possible, I would die and go to hell if you would take all of my, all the nation. Now that's a pretty big statement. I don't have that much love for anybody <laughs> yet. Moses said the same thing. Forgive them. Take me instead. Now, I don't have that much love. I'm learning to love. <laughs> I'm getting closer to that kind of love, I think. But I'm not ready to say that statement yet. There are people that I love enough that I probably would die for. Because especially, and it may sound strange, for many cases it would be for the lost that I would be willing to die for. Because I know I'm going to heaven. If I could take their place and give them a little longer to know God, it would be worth it to me. Because God would be able to reach them. Maybe. <laughs> and if I could give them an extra few years, it would be worth it. So this is something that we need to keep in mind. God is asking us to do more than we can ever do without him. And we need to be able to start saying, God, I want to be more like you. And I'm going to say, I'm going to challenge you, make that prayer, but make sure you understand the consequences of that prayer. To become more like God means that you're going to go through a lot of tribulation and trials. Because he's going to say, well, it's easy for you to think you're there. But I'm going to ask you to prove. Not to him. We, God already knows what we are. He already knows what we're going to do. He already knows what we're going to say. He, he knows what we're going to be. The problem is we lie to ourselves. God, I love everybody. Uh-huh. And we might even mean it at the time. God, everybody that I know right now that I'm thinking of, I love. Uh, but even, let's say, I love my spouse. And we're supposed to love our spouse. How many times will our spouse get on our nerves <laughs> and do just the right things to make us wonder, do we really love them? <laughs> you know, our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ that we're supposed to love. Jesus said, by this you will know that they are my disciples, by their love one for another. And in general, good Christians love the members of, their, of the body of Christ. Oh, but it is so easy for, them to, for, for us to get on each other's nerves and to be irritated by something said or done or, or not done. You know, this person should have done this and they didn't do it and now I'm not happy with them. You know, uh, and it's so easy for all of this to happen. You know, so easy for this to happen. And God is saying... I want you. 
and he's going to put us, this, in human terms, through the ringer to prove to us that we are not who we think we are. I don't trust God as much as I think I trust him. I don't love him as much as I think I love him. I don't, I'm not as gracious toward his people as I think I, as I, think I am. You know, because we'll lie to ourselves. God, I really love your church members. I really, I really am, you know, I can show them grace. Now, we get better and better at it the more we go through the process. But whenever we think we've arrived at some level for God, you know, God, is, God is not nice. He keeps raising the bar even when we get to the bar that we think we're supposed to be there. And I think he's not raising the bar, but he's raising our expectation of the bar. <laughs> God, I think I'm there. I, I love... I love um, I love 20% of the church. <laughs> and God says, well, I didn't tell you to love 20% of the church. Uh, all right, God, maybe I can go to, maybe I can go to 25%. <laughs> Take it, <babies>. <laughs> but it all comes down to this whole thing that God says, I'm going to feed my, my, my flock. I'm going to feed them. And he feeds us. And those that aren't his flock, he still feeds them too. But they're being fed for destruction. When people stand before God at the white throne judgment, they're going to be without excuse. God is going to show them every time they were disobedient and rejected Christ. Rejected their conscience. Because if nothing else, people know they're guilty because they've disobeyed their own conscience. And God's, you know, people go, well, what about these people that don't know Jesus and don't know the Bible? They know they're wrong too. You know, it's an amazing thing that people can't even keep the rules for their own groups. If you get into a, you know, let's say you're part of a gang. Gangs have their own rules and their own subset of rules, and if you disobey those rules, they take care of the people that disobey their rules, and people can't obey those rules. Out of the prison, they have, the prisoners all have their own set of rules. They don't always match the rules of the, of the prison. <laughs> and yet, they can't keep their own rules. God knows that humans cannot obey rules. We have this natural inclination of disobedience. And we're all that way. I'm that way. If you, know, uh, if you tell me I can't do something, you better have a good reason for it. Otherwise, I'm going to wonder why, you know, why I can't do it. These homeowner associations that say you can't paint your houses a certain color or, or do this or do that. I would probably even, you know, don't paint your house pink. I'd probably want to paint my house pink just because they couldn't, they told me I couldn't. And we're all that way. As soon as we're told we can't do something, our first inclination of, watch me. <laughs> and it doesn't matter what group we're in, how small a group we're in, but even in our own lives, we disobey our own conscience. Everybody, when they first start sinning, knows that what they're doing is wrong. The conscience tells them. Now, they may sear their conscience by continually doing it over and over and over and over and over again, but God's going to say, those first, first 29 times you did it, you knew that it was wrong. You may not have recognized it was wrong after that, but those first 29 times, first five times, whatever it is, you knew it was wrong, and you still did it. You are guilty. And nobody will be able to stand up for him and say, God, I did not sin. They will know that they are a sinner. 
they will know they rejected God's gift. And verse 9, real quick on this, he says, And I will not, and let him that die, die, and him that is to be cut off be cut off, and him that is to, and the rest, let the rest eat the flesh of another. This is so awful. <laughs> God says, if you're, plant, if, you're, if you're set up to die, pestilence and diseases is what most people think of this one. You're, you're going to die by disease, you're going to die by disease. If you're going to die by, by being cut off or going to war, you're going to die by being cut off or going to war. Uh, if you're going to die by, by hunger, so much so that you want to eat something, you're going to die by that. One of the great things for us as Christians is as long as I am in God's will, I am safe. Nothing will happen to me. It is said, and I, I agree with this, until God's ready for us to die as a Christian, we're invincible. Now, it doesn't mean we won't have much pain in the process, but I am not going to die until God allows me to die. Once he says that I'm going to die, it doesn't matter what I do, how safe I wrap myself up in bubble wrap and put myself in a, in a, a hermetically sealed room with no diseases and, and everything. If it's time for me to die, I'm going to die. Now, that may sound kind of morbid, but at the same time, it's very freeing. When God asks me to do something, I just do it. If it's asking me to do something that's scary, it's not a problem because he's told me to do it and I'm going to live as long as he has ordained me to live. I have been in some very interesting areas in my lifetime. The combat zone in Boston, Harlem in, in uh, New York, been in, the, in the, the Watts area of L.A., I mean, I, I, I delivered pizzas in a place that they was told I wasn't even supposed to go into one time. The, the, the company didn't deliver the pizzas there, and I took them there. You know, but I don't fear man. I don't. Because I'm there for God. And I've been able to witness in those, in those areas. And I've been able to share the, God's message with people and help out others. We are not going to die until God says it's time for us to die. Now, we don't know what that is, so don't be foolish and do dumb things, but, but we also cannot fear what God has asked us to do. This is why when I talk about that we're headed into persecution probably in our lifetime, that would be fearful if it wasn't for God being in control. He will give us the grace to get through it. And if not, he'll let us die a martyr's death early. And the goal of every Christian is to be with the Father and do what he wants. The greatest process, he says, those who die of a martyr will be given a martyr's crown. There's a reward for being a martyr. We want to be able to say, God, I'm ready to do whatever you want me to do. No matter how scary it might be, no matter how hard it might be, God, I'm ready to serve you because he will give us the strength. He equips those he calls. And he doesn't usually call people that are equipped to begin with. Most of the time, God uses the most unusual people to do things. And you look at that person and you're going, you're the one running that ministry? You're the one doing that? You? <laughs> 
And how many of us are doing things in our lifetime that we never thought we would ever do? I get to minister to people. Now, all of you don't understand how much of a miracle that is. Because there were years in my lifetime when I didn't even like people <laughs> at all. And I still struggle to a degree with it. But if I never had to deal with a person in my lifetime, when I was in my 20s and 30s, I would have been happy not to deal with people. You know, when I first moved to Kingman, it was, I had a heavenly job. I worked at home. The only time I ever left home was to go to the store. <laughs> and as I've told everybody, when I go to the store, if I walk past you and don't say hi to you, don't take it personal, because when I go to the store, I have one purpose. To buy what I'm getting and get out of the store as quick as possible. And that was before the pandemic. It was just, that's, that is me. I go to the store, walk past everybody, <laughs> you know, don't see anybody, good, pick up what I want and leave. It is funny when I go shopping with my wife. She meets somebody in the first or second aisle that she knows. I go shopping. I come back, she's still talking to the same person that she, was, that she met when I first got there. Yeah. But for all of you, you know, God is very interested, interested in that he made me a pastor to love and care for people. And he's had to teach me to love and care for people. And it is tough sometimes. I have the same problems everybody else does with loving people and being gracious to people and, and, and being merciful to people. Now I've come, come a long ways. Still have a long ways to go. But, you know, God uses people. And we look at our own lives and go, God, I can't believe you're using me to do this. I can't believe you're, you're asking me to do this. And he says, the Holy Spirit gives you the strength. So we want to honor God learn to follow him in all that he does. Lord, we ask you to bless this time. Help and keep us in all that we do. Show us what you would want us to see through all of our life and help us to grow. Help us to learn to trust you more and more and to grow in a better and better way. We just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23, we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much, he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10, 9-8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of, of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. 
Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431.